0: The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au Okay, so uh, good morning everyone. Uh, Nice to see you again. Uh, And uh, we're going to carry on obviously where we left off yesterday. Uh, uh, We have just finished the kind of slightly unusual sutta about the dreams and now we're going to come squarely back into kind of more real dhamma again things that are more usual to focus on her and uh, the sutta for this morning is the uh, fam- one of the famous sutras that i usually focus on on almost every retreat that i do this is called the two kinds of thought uh, the dveda bitaka sutta uh, found in the Majjhima number 19. Uh, and uh, this uh, Particular sutta, one of the reasons why it has always interested me uh, is because it is about how to overcome the unwholesome qualities of the mind. uh, And it shows you very clearly how that is done. uh, And one of the things that is uh, the uh, kind of fascinating thing about this sutta is that it shows you that you overcome the unwholesome qualities of mind, not through willpower, not through suppression, not through holding things down, uh, not by an act of will at all, uh, but actually by an act of wisdom. uh. The way to practice the Noble Eightfold Path is always through wisdom, uh, rather than through using willpower. uh. It is about developing the right kind of perceptions. It's about seeing the world in the right way. It's about understanding the problems that arise and how to overcome them. uh. Wisdom is what is really powerful on this path, uh, whereas willpower turns out to be quite weak and quite useless very often. uh. And this is one of the reasons why the sutta is so interesting, precisely because it makes that point. It give rise to wisdom uh, and then you overcome the problems as a consequence. uh. But uh, there is an alternative way of thinking about the sutta. One of the things that I have been trying to emphasize so far is the idea of right view, right? How to look at the world in the right way, how to develop that right view. Not having the idea that you have right view once and for all, then you're finished with it. No, you develop the right view by perceiving things in the right way, by reading the suttas, understanding the Buddha's view and outlook on the world. And this sutta can also be understood from the point of view of right view, how to develop our perceptions, uh, so that we see things more clearly in accordance with how they actually are. Uh, and this is why I have uh, incorporated it this time, a uh, uh, sort of slightly different angle on this sutta from what I normally uh, how I normally look at it. That's kind of the idea. We'll see what happens when, you, when we go through it. Maybe it will sound exactly like before, but anyway, that's kind of the... Uh, the theory. See, practice, of course, always different from theory here. Huh? Isn't that true? Yeah. Practice is always different. In theory, the suttas, everything sounds so easy and straightforward and obvious when you hear the suttas. And then you go back home, you try to do it. Actually, what's what, what went wrong <laughs> sometimes? Huh? So, um, But the idea is the theory always comes first. Uh, and then gradually, it seeps into the uh, Uh, subconscious or the consciousness, uh, and then it guides us regardless of whether we want to or not. It's just that the habits of the mind are so strong, uh, it takes a long time for these views and perceptions to really make an impact on our lives. uh. And this is why the path is so urgent, uh, because actually it takes time for things to mature. uh. So, uh, let's see what the Buddha has to say in the uh, uh, famous Vitaka Sutta. It is just as famous as any other sutta, but uh, of course, every sutta is famous in its own way. Uh, so I have heard at one time the Buddha was staying near Savati in Jeta's Grove, another Pindaka's monastery. Here, there the Buddha addressed the mendicants. Mendicants, venerable sir, they replied, and the Buddha said this: Mendicants, before my awakening, when I was still unawakened but intent on awakening, I thought. Why don't I divide my thoughts into two classes? So I assign sensual, malicious and harmful thoughts to one class. And I assign thoughts of renunciation, goodwill and compassion to the second class. So... um, uh, here again, we are back to before the Buddha's awakening. Yeah, this idea about we're looking at the Buddha to be. How did the Buddha reach awakening? Uh, trying to find some inspiration in the Buddha's pra- Buddha to be's practice, uh, and uh, so he is intent on awakening. And this in, being intent on awakening leads him to divide his thoughts into two classes. Uh, I don't quite like the translation here meditate by continually doing it i think that is too uh, too narrow it is it means that you generally divide your thoughts into two classes yeah it's a general thing yeah the pali word is viharati viharati means to to dwell, uh, quite literally, uh, and very often, dwelling in Buddhism means to meditate. Yeah? You dwell in a certain kind of meditation, etc. So very often it has that meaning. But in this context, uh, it's too narrow, uh, and so I, uh, it's a difficulty of translation to get the translation right. Uh, and so I don't kind of um, it's you know I don't blame anyone for this. But sometimes I think you need an alternative uh, viewpoint. Uh, so you divide your thoughts into two classes, right? This is like right view, right there. This idea of dividing your thinking into two classes. yeah. On the one hand, you have the unwholesome kind of thoughts. You have to recognize that thoughts are unwholesome. And this is not always obvious. Yeah, You have to recognize that other thoughts are actually wholesome. That too may not be obvious to you. And so this ability to see and divide the mind into compartmentalize it, if you like. Certain things are good, certain things are bad. This is already a very important part of right view. So we should do the same. We should try to recognize what thoughts are unwholesome. Now some of these may be obvious, okay malicious thoughts, yeah, or thoughts of ill will, as it is often called, via pada vitakka. So you may think that that's obvious, that thoughts of ill will are unwholesome. But actually, sometimes you won't see that. Yeah, sometimes it will feel like this unwholesome thought is unjustified. I need to get angry now, because anger is right in this sort of situation. This person needs to be told off, they need to learn, this is called tough love. <laughs> Don't justify your anger by thinking it's tough love, Yeah, because all you're doing is justifying something that is unwholesome. But it's very easy to think that anger is justified. Yeah, what about all the problems in the world? What about climate change? Shouldn't we be angry about these things? And the answer is no, because anger is probably what's driving climate change in the first place. It is the defilements of human beings that drive all the problems in the world. Anger, greed, all of these kind of things. That is never part of the solution. The solution is to be cool. The solution is to be energized by compassion and understanding, not by anger. So we're getting these things wrong. I, I can, you can understand why people are angry, but just because you can understand it doesn't mean it is justified. Huh? So you need to contemplate this in a deep way huh? yeah, to, uh, to see that this actually is a problem. Huh? And it is never really justified to get angry. Huh? These are problems, and they need to be put into the bad category, the uh, container labeled bad. That's where they, they belong, these kind of thoughts. Huh? So even with ill will it is difficult sometimes to see that it is no good. Yeah? Even with that kind of, ob- which is one of the most obvious kind of thoughts that are bad. Yeah? Let alone with these other two categories here. The next one is the idea of being harmful. He has translated as cruel here, but it is the opposite of compassion really. Yeah? Yeah, is the vi or hingsa So what does that mean? What is the opposite of compassion? The opposite of compassion is to have a hard heart. Yeah, it is to be inconsiderate, not to care about the consequences of your actions. Uh, callous is a kind of nice English word. Callous means having, being hard-hearted, uh, yeah, not caring about your consequences. If you are someone who lives your life, uh, and you live your life, you know, you're know kind of walking down the path, and there's all these ants on the path, and you think, yeah, whatever, the ants are in the way, I don't care. Uh, you don't not have ill will towards them, you just don't care about the consequences of your actions. Uh or you are a business person, practicing you know, whatever in business life, and you don't care about the consequences of the people around you. You don't care about the detrimental effects of your business practices. And that's like being callous, the opposite of compassion. And it's kind of strange, it's almost like, it's not really an intention almost, it's almost like a, a kind of mind state that is detrimental. Yeah, It is like, okay, if you don't have compassion, if you don't have consideration for others, uh, that in itself is kind of a bad thing. Yeah. And so this is what this really is about. Uh. Again, that is a little bit less clear than the other one, uh, but it is more clear. But the really harder one to understand uh, and the one that needs a lot of contemplation to really figure out what is going on, that is the sensual thoughts uh, Yeah, the thoughts related to the five-sense world, that is the difficult one. And you may wonder, you know, why as a layperson, why should I consider this? You know, you live enmeshed in the five-sense world, you have families, many of you, you have a house, you have all of these things in that sensory realm. Isn't that really for monastics, ne kamma vitakka, giving up that world? It is true, it is much more important on the monastic path, because the monastic path is geared towards uh, giving things up. It is geared towards non-sensuality, geared towards renunciation. When we use the word renunciation, it is the opposite of sensuality that we mean. But it is useful also, at least to some extent, in lay life. Yeah, Because it the idea with this kind of renunciation uh, is to kind of look towards something larger in life uh, look towards something more profound uh, not be satisfied with the ordinary things of the world which we know all of you know to some extent that these things are problematic at some point uh, that they don't really give true satisfaction that we need something more in our life we need a spiritual practice uh, we need to kind of eye that higher goal uh, something more profound something deeper beyond the ordinary conditions of the world uh, because if we haven't got that uh, we are so vulnerable to the problems of the world uh, we are so vulnerable to all the things uh, that are problematic uh, in this world around us uh. So what we need to do then, is we need to remind ourselves a little bit about the downside of these things. And that will, if you do it in the right way, instead of making you depressed, it will encourage you to practice your meditation, practice the spiritual life. One of the best ways of doing this is simply to observe what happens in your meditation practice. Is to observe when are you the most happy in your ordinary life. And what you will see if you do that, you will see that, well, when the thoughts of the world outside, when they die down, uh, when the mind becomes peaceful, uh, when you are enjoying, you are mindful, you are aware of what's happening around you, maybe your focus is coming together on the breath, uh, and you start to realize, actually, this is a superior state uh, to all the craving, all the restlessness, all the agitation of the world around us, uh, when we mind is involved with that world around us. uh, and just seeing that much uh, inclines the mind towards something better, something more peaceful, something more beautiful, uh, something more profound. Uh, and that is really enough to kind of start to undermine the interest in the five-sense world uh, a little bit. Uh. You can still live ordinary lives, but it inclines the mind in the right direction. Uh, and that is already a very positive thing uh. And then you can see where this takes you. Uh. And you may be surprised, yeah. These things can take you a long way forwards on the Buddhist path. It is kind of extraordinary. I have met so many lay Buddhists in my life who actually are really good meditators, yeah. Who actually are able to give up that five sense world to a large extent. And what a wonderful thing that is. It means that even though you live lay life, you have the ability to withdraw from that, uh, to withdraw your mind from the marge, from the snare of sensuality, as we saw yesterday, uh, and enjoy that aspect of renunciation, which is is the renunciation of the mind, when the mind lets go of those things. uh. That's a wonderful thing, it's a wonderful prize, something really worthwhile doing. And then you start to see the downside of the sensory realm why it is a low realm why it is inferior why it tends to lead to suffering in the long run all of these things start to become clear to you so you divide the world in this way and then on the positive side you have the thoughts of non-ill will thoughts of non-ill will or I can't remember the translation here now but let's have a look non uh what is the translation that he you, Yes, partly true, but in English, uh, renunciation, yeah, goodwill, so that's what he uses That. yeah, so he uses goodwill. So this is non will. goodwill here basically means metta, yeah? And you know that metta, if you see the good qualities in people around you, uh, just purely the good qualities, the spiritual good qualities, uh, that is, not the worldly good qualities, but the spiritual good qualities, uh, when you see that, uh, it is a, always a wholesome state of mind, uh, always positive. Uh, uh, compassion is the opposite of harmfulness. So harmlessness he has here, but compassion is really the opposite. Compassion is always good. Compassion is the desire to alleviate suffering. Compassion is not indulging in the suffering of others, but is the desire to help alleviate suffering. And the last one is the idea of renouncing, yeah, of giving up. Like when I was saying yesterday when you are busy in your lay life, you're busy at work, busy doing things, uh, and you crave for meditation practice. Uh, When that craving is there, when you actually want to go back, and you want desire just to sit down and be peaceful, uh, that is actually a thought of renunciation, because you realize the world around you is just too much uh, uh, problems, uh, too busy, too many things going on. Uh, That's one way that thought of renunciation happens. So uh, you divide the world in this way, and then what happens? Uh, then, as I was diligent, keen, and resolute, essential thought arose. The Pali quite literally says, as I was thus, in this way, diligent, uh, apamada, uh, heedful, careful, circumspect, uh, keen, uh, apamada, atapi, pahitatta, atapi is like. Uh, Having energy, yeah, keen is actually a nice translation, uh, because you have that energy of the mind when you are keen and you are exerting yourself for the goal, but often exerting yourself in a positive sense, uh, in the sense that you are enjoying what you're doing, Yeah, you're keen, you are inspired, uh, moving in the right direction. The word atapi is closely related to padana. Padana is effort on the Buddhist path, uh, and also related to virya. Virya is the energy of the mind. Uh, it is some closely related to those words. Uh, the Buddha uses slightly different words because uh, we see an evolution of the idea of effort on the path. Uh, initially, you may use quite a bit of effort in your practice. Yeah, especially to be moral, to live well. Uh, you may kind of. Try, you shouldn't try too hard, you should really try to use wisdom. But a little bit of effort is required just to give rise to the thoughts of wisdom. And then that effort evolves, and as it evolves it becomes more refined. So Padana goes into Atapi. This is what we find in the meditation practice, this is a meditation context. You have Atapi while you're watching the breath. And then eventually that Atapi, that effort you're doing, gives rise to Virya. And Virya is the energy of the mind. It is one of the seven factors of awakening. It is what happens when the mind becomes peaceful, when the mind has joy, when the mind is tranquil. Energy comes into the mind, it's a natural energy here. You don't have to exert yourself anymore. This is the ideal kind of effort. The natural energy of the mind. And then Pahitatta, Pahitatta is just another word for padana really. So it means like yeah, resolute or exerting yourself or whatever. So as you abide in this way or live in this way, yeah. In this way refers back to the idea of dividing the world into two or thoughts into two classes. That's what it refers to. Huh? Yeah? As I live in this way. Huh? And living in this way is called heedful. It's called energetic. It is called living with effort. That is how you live with effort. Huh? By dividing the your thoughts into two classes, that is the kind of effort that is required. Huh? That is what is meant by being heedful. Huh? This kind of Fairly simple understanding, right, because what you are doing there, you are using wisdom to understand the nature of the world and the nature of the mind. And by using that wisdom in the right way, to guide your mind in the right direction, that is being heedful, that is being diligent, that is being keen, all of these kind of things. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because that's not normally how we think about diligent. Diligent to most people means like being like an ant. Ants are very diligent. Yeah, They run around all the time, working ceaselessly from one life to the next one, uh, never really resting. Uh, ants never rest. Have you seen that? Uh, it's kind of terrible to be an ant. There's no, there's no meditation for ants, right? Uh, and there's no just sitting back and enjoying yourself. It's just always working. Uh, and this, to me, is like diligent. But uh, that is not what diligent actually means in this context. Uh, what it means is using your wisdom, using being heedful, circumspect. That is what it means to be diligent. That is what it means to be Appamada. And, so, and this, that's what it means to be energetic, that's what it means to exert yourself. Yeah, It's such a Im- kind of very interesting idea that you find throughout the suttas. Wisdom power is always the path. Willpower, exerting yourself, a little bit is required but it's only a tiny bit. The vast majority of it is about using wisdom, being careful of what you're doing. So as you have this kind of wisdom, a sensual thought arises. So what are you going to do if a sensual thought arises? This could be anything. It could be thinking about dinner when you're supposed to meditate. That's a sensual thought. And So then he says, well, I understood. This sensual thought has arisen in me. It leads to hurting myself, hurting others, and hurting both. It blocks wisdom. It's on the side of anguish, and it doesn't lead, or rather it leads away from extinguishment. When I reflected that it leads to hurting myself, it went away. When I reflected that it leads to hurting others, it went away. When I reflected that it leads to hurting both, it went away. When I reflect that it blocks wisdom, it's on the side of anguish, it leads away from extinguishment, uh, it went away. So I gave up, got rid of and eliminated any sensual thoughts that arose. So this is really very, very interesting. Yeah? And uh, this is the thing about reading the suttas, you have to read them many times to really understand what the message is. Uh. So it starts off by understanding this sensual thought has arisen in me. Here, this is the beginning of this whole thing. right? So even just understanding that you're having a sensual thought, this is not necessarily easy. Yeah, one of the things we think that sensual thoughts they are just about kind of coarse thoughts about you know yeah, oh, I'm looking forward to dinner tonight or something, and you crave, you kind of visualise the kind of food in your mouth, yeah, and your kind of mouth starts to water. <laughs> Does that happen to you on meditation? Sometimes these things can happen, right? Especially if you're not used to not eating in the afternoon. It can be difficult. It's kind of, this is quite a core sensual thought. And uh, uh, So first of all, you need to recognize that actually these things are also very refined. If you are thinking about the problems at work, if you are thinking about problems with friends or whatever, that, all of that is in the sensual realm. All of that is part of the sensory thoughts that we have. And all of these things are really the things that we're looking to give up in this, this kind of process. And you will start to realize that almost all your thoughts are sen- sensory thoughts in one way. Actually, the word sensual doesn't really kind of cover what we're talking about all that well, because sensual seems to imply a kind of particular way of thinking. This is all thinking about the five-sense world. That is what it really means. And almost everything we do is concerned with that world. So this is the first thing here, right? To recognize what is actually meant by these things. Uh, that is already quite difficult. Uh, and uh, one of the aspects of the deeper sides of meditation, when you look at the Satipatthana Sutta, yeah, the mindfulness meditation, a lot of it is precisely about investigating your mind uh, to understand the refined nature of these defilements. Uh, you can only overcome them uh, if you understand what they are. Uh, this is already quite So what do we do? We start out with the obvious things, uh, and then we kind of gradually learn more about the nature of the mind as we go along here. So first of all, you understand. uh, Then, uh, yeah, he understands this leads to hurting myself. So this is kind of very powerful. How do we understand that sensual thoughts uh, or five-sense world thoughts, that it leads to hurting yourself. How do you do that? Yeah? And this is where the idea of right view and of perceiving the world in the right way comes in. Because most of us don't see this. It can be quite tricky and hard to see. And the reason why it is hard to see is because our habits are going in the exact opposite direction. So this is where we need to reflect a little bit. And one of the things that you will obviously see, especially in your meditation, is that it stops you from being peaceful that is a kind of a harmful state. Yeah, The mind that is always agitated, always restless. It is not a very pleasant state of mind. The peaceful mind is far superior to the restless mind. And so by thinking these thoughts, you are hurting yourself. It's a kind of a very obvious one. But it goes much beyond that. Yeah, there's many, many ways of understanding why the five-sense world is hurting you. And I was mentioning some of these things the other day. One of the things that as soon as you get involved in the five sense world, uh, you are also attaching to that world, uh. and whenever you are attaching to the five sense world, uh, you are asking for suffering. Uh. Yeah, it is a the simile. One of the similes in the suttas that I understand in this way. One of the similes is the simile of the debt. Uh, that uh, you know, whenever you indulge in the five sense world, you are building up a debt. You're going to have to pay that back later on. Uh. This is the idea that it leads to has to lead to suffering down the track because when you attach to something, it will have to lead to you're going to have to be taken away from you at some point. Uh, this is another way of thinking about this, yeah. And you understand that the peace of meditation is actually the opposite uh, of attaching in the five sense world, uh, heading in a different way. You're giving those things up, uh, but uh, uh, you know, even more useful. Uh, is to remember that there are no solutions in the five sense world i was mentioning this the other day it was one of the kind of mantras that you can use in your meditation if you wish the five sense world just goes on and on and on and there is no end point there is no thing you just crave and then you get some satisfaction because you satisfy that craving and then you crave more you get some satisfaction and sometimes the craving gets coarser and coarser as you go along but there is no endpoint in that world. It's just more of the same. And this is uh, uh, this is uh, um, uh, talked about in the suttas uh, through the beautiful simile of the dog, the dog and the bone, the dog and the skeleton. Uh, and this uh, Simile of the Buddha huh, is the idea that if you are a dog, you are a hungry dog, yeah, you're always looking for food. Yeah, especially if you're one of those dogs in India that are kind of really mangy and, and kind of dodgy dogs, and they're, they're not, it's not like dogs in the kind of Australia that are looked after and cuddled and kind of, you know, it's very different kind of dogs you have in India. And huh? if you've seen those Indian dogs, huh? they are not very you wouldn't want to have them in your house, that's for sure. Yeah. And uh, and the Then the Buddha says, it's like this dog that is really hungry. And when the dog is hungry, it goes to the butcher shop. And it's waiting outside the butcher shop, so the butcher might toss it some meat, or some bones, or whatever. It's kind of waiting outside the butcher, looking through the window, seeing all the beautiful meat, or maybe I will get some of this meat. But of course, the butcher in India is not going to give meat to this dodgy dog outside. The meat is valuable. he wants to sell that meat to someone, to, to a... To a human being who can pay for it, not give it away to a dodgy dog on the outside. No compassion for the dog. Butchers don't have compassion for dogs in that way. And so he scrapes off all the meat until there's nothing left because it's valuable. And then finally, when there's nothing of value left, he said, Okay, I might as well give that dog the bone, right? So it chucks out the bone to the dog, and on the, that bone, there's always a bit of blood left on that bone. Uh, so the dog kind of licks this bone, Yeah, as oh, really kind of craving becomes very strong, because it feels the taste of meat is almost there. The taste of blood, the taste of meat is basically the same thing. Yeah. But there is no sustenance. Uh, there's nothing to make that dog satisfied or content. Yeah, All it does, it leads to more craving, because it doesn't find that satisfaction, because a bone can't be eaten. And so it just tastes these things. Uh, and of course, because it tasted, it's just as hungry as before. And so what does it do? runs off to the next butcher shop, uh, tries, to find, tries to find a compassionate butcher. Uh, but in this simile, there's no compassionate butchers. Uh. That's the downside of this kind of, this is the, the, the dark side of this simile. Uh. And so it carries on like this, carries on never finding satisfaction. Uh. This is... Uh, the reality of the sensory world. There is no satisfaction there. We're not going anywhere. There is no end point. There is no real purpose to this. It just goes round and round and round, like this dog running from one butcher to the next one. And it seems bleak, right? But the thing about our lives, if you look at your life It seems like when you're young, it may look like there's a purpose to life. It may look like if you live in the right way, if you get into the right relationship, you get the right house, you get the right job, yeah? It looks like you're going somewhere. It looks like there's a purpose to all of this. But then when you get there, you wonder, is this it? Was there really any real solution? There wasn't really any real solution. You never actually attained that satisfaction that you wanted in the first place. And then in the meantime, that dog dies. And when that dog dies, it gets reborn as what? As a dog, because once you are a dog, it's a very sticky kind of place to be reborn. And then when you get reborn as a little puppy, your mother, where does your mother take you? To the butcher shop. And you hang out outside the butcher shop. (laughs) I'm sorry about this terrible simile, (laughs) but this is how it works. When you get reborn uh, as a human being, that craving is still there. It was never fulfilled there. You carry on in the same thing you did last life, looking for satisfaction where no satisfaction can be found. Uh, This is what we have been doing already for thousands and millions of lifetimes. Uh, We still haven't found any satisfaction in that realm. Why? Because it cannot be found in that realm. uh. And so when you start to see the world in this way, uh, at least a little bit, yeah. Because I think all of you will probably agree that there must be some truth to this. You cannot see the full truth of this. If you did, you wouldn't, you know, you'd already be an arahant and there wouldn't be any issues. But at least some of the truth you can see, and what that does, it inclines the mind onto the spiritual path. Yeah, inclines the mind in a different direction because on the spiritual path, when you start to live in a compassionate, kind, caring, generous way. That satisfaction starts to build up inside uh, and you can see that uh, there's a different kind of happiness that comes from living a spiritual existence. Uh, It is a kind of happiness uh, that doesn't have anything to do with craving. Uh, It doesn't lead to more desires. Uh, It doesn't lead you to find something else in the world. It leads to satisfaction right here and now. Uh, If you do an act of kindness, you straight away feel good about yourself. There's something peaceful and something beautiful about it that is very different from the five-sense world. And then you take that into your meditation. You take your meditation even deeper, and you start to feel a different kind of satisfaction that you have never experienced before. And you start to realize that this is what you have been looking for all along This is what the five-sense realm was somehow promising you, but could never deliver. And you get it in a completely different area. You get it by giving up attachment to the five-sense realm, looking for it in meditation practice instead, deeper and deeper and deeper, until one day that satisfaction is complete. And when the satisfaction is complete, craving is completely gone. And that is where you start to really discover what life is all about, so this is these are ways uh, of thinking about the five sense world, uh, yeah. These are ways that gradually lead you out of that world, uh, gradually move you in the right direction, uh. and um, yeah. So this is one of the great things about being a teacher. He gives you an opportunity to talk about these things, yeah. And so these are these are great things, and they are good reminders for everyone. So it's kind of really nice to be able to talk about this. So. so you understand why it hurts yourself, right? This is the first thing Yeah, It hurts yourself because actually there's no solution there. And in the meantime, because you are intoxicated by this five sense world, you do bad things in the pursuit of them. And by doing bad things in the pursuit of them, you make bad karma for yourself. And then it leads to all kinds of terrible consequences in the future. So it has all kinds of negative consequences. You're hurting yourself. Do you want to hurt yourself? Or do you want to be your own best friend? Please be your own best friend. It also hurts others, yeah, because in that pursuit of these things, we are competing with others. We end up doing nasty things as a consequence of this. We draw other people into attachments, etc., etc. And so we're hurting other people as well. And in reality, most of the time, we hurt both ourselves and others. It's not one or the other, but actually we hurt everyone. And... Uh, to me, that has often been one of the ways I like to define what a spiritual action actually is. What does it mean to be a spiritual person? What is a spiritual act? What is a spiritual speech, a spiritual thought or a Buddhist thought, if you like? And it is a, it is a thought or an action or a speech that is both leads to your happiness and also to the happiness of others. If it leads to the happiness of both, then it is a something that is a, beautiful and Buddhist and spiritual. Like uh, generosity is good for you, good for the other person. Kindness, good for you, good for the other person. Uh, meditation, good for you, also good for the other person. Uh, meditation is not selfish. Uh, when you come out of your meditation, when you are more purified, when you are wiser because of what you're doing, you will be more effective in the world in treating other people in the right way and having your own wisdom. Meditation is not selfish. In fact, I would recommend you when you do your meditation practice, remember that you're doing this not, for, not just for yourself, that you're doing the meditation as an act of generosity for the world. That is actually very powerful in meditation. Yeah, because that makes it a very positive kind of, straight away it brings up a positive mind state right there. But if you have a sense of, uh, I'm doing this for selfish reasons, uh, it damages the meditation. uh, But if you do the meditation for altruistic reasons, for yourself and for others, uh, as an act of generosity, uh, yeah, okay, I'm going to sit down, I'm doing this as an act of generosity. uh, It leads the mind in the right direction. You're almost like, adding joy, adding something positive to the meditation at the very outset. So, yeah, so this is why Right view is so important. This is why using our perceptions matters so enormously because these things really are quite hard to see. Yeah, it takes time. Reconditioning of the mind. The mind is so conditioned. I shouldn't use the word hard all the time because it's not really hard. It's just a matter of reconditioning. Reconditioning, it takes time. That's really what it is about. And then the Buddha says it blocks wisdom. Yeah. Panya Nirodhika, it makes wisdom cease. Quite literally. And uh, so if you want to be wise, uh, you don't want to be involved too much in the five-sense world uh, because it um, uh, it, uh, it makes the mind agitated. uh, It makes the mind uh, uh, not see clearly because you are interested in things that are not worthy of interest. uh, You have vested interest in these things. uh, And uh, when you have this vested interest in the five-sense world, you can't see it clearly. You need to withdraw from it uh, to be able to see clearly. It's again the simile of the tadpole and the water. Only when you come out of it uh, can you understand what is going on. uh. The more deeply enmeshed in it uh, you are, uh, the less wisdom you have. uh. It is on the side of anguish. uh, um, Agata Pakkika, something like that. uh. I'm pack, pack, I think, yeah. um, so. This means that uh, it is uh, troublesome. Yeah, it is a side of anguish. It is close to dukkha. It is close to all kind of problems, uh, and it is the uh, the anguish of the mind that is restless. That is. Uh, Again, all have all of these problems to it. Uh, and it leads away from extinguishment. Uh, remember that extinguishment is about the extinguishing of the defilements, first of all. Uh, so here you are doing the opposite. You are building up defilements rather than extinguishing them. Uh, so leading away from Nibbana. So where, what, where do you want to go? Do you want to go to Nibbana or do you want to go to the anti-Nibbana? Uh, Anti-Nibbana. I'm not sure if that's it's called the Anibbana in the suttas, I think. Yeah. Anibbana Sangvatika. So, these reflections, if you do them fully, they are very powerful. The Buddha to be, yeah, he, or the Buddha here, thinking back to his time before he became a Buddha, he says, when I reflected that it leads to hurting myself, it went away. All you have to do is to fully understand how you're hurting yourself, and if you understand that fully enough, the thought is completely banished, this is what I mean by wisdom power, right? The power of wisdom is developing this perception, developing these views to the point where you really understand the problem. And when you fully understand the problem, then you will abandon it just like that. Because this is like the simile of the calls that you sometimes see in the suttas. Yeah, if you pick up a hot coal by accident, not really where that is hot, you don't have to think. Should I let go or should I not let go? It's just automatic, you let go, right? Otherwise, you burn your hand. And you understand here that you're holding on to hot coal, the mind just lets go. This is the wisdom power that we're talking about. Or hurting others, sometimes we may feel worse about hurting others. So if you're hurting others, that too will, you know, you don't want to hurt others if you have compassion, you want to do the opposite. That too makes you let go of this. And then, of course, hurting both equally bad. Uh, and then, uh, uh, destroying wisdom, uh, Yeah, leading to the ending of wisdom, the cessation of wisdom, that's pretty bad news. If you want to be wise, uh, wisdom is of course the thing that makes us being able to be effective in this world in terms of creating happiness for ourselves and others. Uh, if you haven't gotten the wisdom, you're destroying the highest faculty that we have as human beings. Uh, And of course, that is exactly what we don't want. Uh, That is really repulsive, in a sense, once you start to see that. Uh, And uh, it is on the side of anguish. Well, we don't want to be on the side of anguish. and leads away from extinguishment. We don't want that. So all of these reflections, yeah, use them in the right way. They lead to the ending of these things. Uh, So I gave it up, got rid of it, and eliminated any sensual thoughts that arose. Uh, And so the way to eliminate these things... uh, is not to use willpower as we sometimes think yeah it sounds like getting rid of and eliminating sounds like you have to use a lot of willpower but no the answer is wisdom power that is how you eliminate these things and um, it is worthwhile just very briefly thinking about why that is the case why is it uh, that wisdom is more powerful than willpower and the reason is quite straightforward. First of all, the willpower uh, takes is just really a kind of suppression. Uh. You're holding things down, yeah, you're kind of forcing them out of your mind. Uh. Sometimes it may work because you use a bit of willpower, then maybe the thought disappears in the meantime because you start thinking about something else. Sometimes it can work, uh, but uh, you very often it does not work. Uh. You're suppressing it and then it comes back later to go on again, and sometimes it comes back with even more power. Uh. But wisdom power uh, is actually turning the mind in a different direction. Uh. And when you use wisdom power in the right way, uh, actually the thought is no longer suppressed. Uh, it is eliminated because you see the opposite of the thought. Uh. And that negative thought cannot exist uh, when you see the opposite, uh, when you see that actually it is dangerous. Uh, yeah? You see the opposite kind of, of what sustains that thought uh. And so wisdom power has the ability to eliminate the thought completely, whereas willpower does not. So if you want to really get rid of something, if you really want to eliminate something, the only way to do it is actually through wisdom and not through willpower. And the second thing is that willpower takes a lot of energy. It tires you out. Yeah, It is problematic in the longer you can only sustain it for so long. Whereas wisdom power, if it is developed, It's just a matter of turning the mind in the right direction, and then it's gone. Uh, The difficulty with wisdom power is that it takes time to develop. Uh, You have to develop it over time, develop right view, develop right perceptions. Uh, That is kind of the downside, if you like, Uh, but that is really, really worthwhile uh, because it gives you some very powerful tools uh, how to deal with these things. Uh, So that is the uh, overcoming of uh, sensual thoughts but more important than overcoming sensual thoughts is the overcoming of ill will yeah or maybe also harmful thoughts but especially ill will and so then the buddha goes on then as i was diligent or as i was heedful keen and energetic or resolute a thought of ill will a thought of harmfulness arose in me I understood that this thought of ill will, this thought of being callous or whatever, has arisen in me. It leads to hurting myself, to hurting others, to hurting both. It blocks wisdom, it's on the side of anguish, and it does not lead, it is away from extinguishment. When I reflected that it leads to hurting myself, hurting others, hurting both, it went away. When I reflected that it blocks wisdom, uh, it's on the side of anguish uh, and it doesn't lead to extinguishment, uh, it went away. So I gave up, got rid of, and eliminated any cruel thoughts uh, that arose. So here we have the same procedure, but now we are dealing with anger. We're dealing with kind of being hard-hearted and these kind of things. And uh, it is easier to understand that anger is bad for you. Why is anger bad for you? Because when you are angry, uh, it is unpleasant. It's a very restless and agitated kind of state of mind to be angry. It leads you on to do things that you don't really want to do. The anger will justify to you uh, to do things that you shouldn't be doing the anger will say, "Now is the time to act, yeah, these people need to hear, get a peace of your mind, and all of these kind of things. The anger will actually compel you almost to do things that you shouldn 't be doing. and then later on, you look back and you regret it because you realize that that was a mistake. So anger leads to all kinds of problems. it leads to destruction of our relationships with other people. yeah no one likes to be around angry people. it is just very unpleasant. And people who are angry all the time, they are kind of sh- people shy away from them uh, because of the displeasure in being with uh, that sort of people. Uh, Anger compels you to make all kinds of bad karma. You make lots of bad karma through being angry, especially when you act it out. Uh, and you create incredible long term bad consequences for you, ultimately leading to a bad rebirth if you are angry a lot uh, and you act on it a lot. Uh. So it is almost immeasurable the amount of harm that anger does. Uh, But again, you need to reflect on it to understand this kind of thing. Uh, You may think that you understand it already, but you can understand this even more deeply. There is a real issue here. Uh, And once you understand the issue, once you understand that you are hurting yourself, uh, actually you give it up. Uh, And the way to give it up uh, Sometimes it is not enough to understand that it's hurting yourself. Sometimes you need some strategies to give up anger, right? And those strategies are things like knowing that, you know, the, people are, the things that we are angry with the world is usually people. So it is about knowing, understanding people in the right way. Understanding that people don't, you know, that... When they do bad things, it's not really personal. That's one of my favorite ways of thinking about uh, other people's actions. Uh, it's never personal. It's about the other person. It is their conditioning. Because of their conditioning, they're acting in a certain way. It has nothing to do with you, uh, that another person does bad things. Uh, and because they've got nothing to do with you, there's no reason to be angry with that person. Rather, you should have compassion because you know that they are trapped uh, in those personal traits and characteristics that they have. Uh, that is a very powerful contemplation. It's very simple, but it's very powerful. And this is the contemplation that the Buddha or the suttas recommend, that when someone has bad qualities, you should see them as a sick person. Yeah, They are sick because basically they are trapped in these things, and they end up doing many bad things that lead to very bad consequences in the long run. When you are really sick, it can lead to your death, unless you have some kind of support, unless you have some doctors or whatever. And in the same way, a lot of bad qualities, where do they lead? Well, they lead you to dying eventually and being reborn in a very bad place. It has very severe consequences. So when someone treats you badly, it is not your problem, it is their problem. It is not personal, it got nothing to do with you. You just happen to be there, right? It is the other person that has a problem, it is their bad habits, it is their bad conditioning from the past. And so instead of them being selfish, instead of being too self-concerned, this is about me, you actually turn it around and you become concerned about the other person instead. They are the one that have the problem. And when you start to think like this, you start to it it, it really reduces uh, anger and ill will very powerfully, uh, and it cannot really be sustained anymore when you think like this in the right way uh. and uh, then you have the idea of hardness for the world, yeah not caring for other people uh, not caring about how your consequences uh, what, what are the consequences of your actions uh. and uh, that hard heartedness is also kind of a is a negative thing yeah because it means that you are insensitive to what's happening around you, uh, and you create suffering in the world through, you know, simply through your actions. And That kind of hard-heartedness itself uh, has all of these negative consequences sell, uh, uh, down the track. Yeah. And it's a painful state of mind to be hard-hearted. Uh. Much better to be compassionate. Uh. A compassionate mind is much more uh, malleable and nice and, and fun to live with than the hard-hearted kind of uh, mind state. Uh. So again, you reflect on all of these things. Uh, you see the escape from these things. You see the solution to the problems. Uh, and you remember that these things are really problematic. Uh, in the long run, they lead to terrible consequences. You find a way around it, uh, and you eliminate these thoughts. Uh, and a lot of it, again, is about having the right view about people, yeah? understanding people in the right way, developing the perception uh, of people, uh, seeing people not as independent entities making your life miserable but seeing people more as trapped in their own kind of life in their own habits and the more you see that the more ability you will have to deal with these things but you can see how all of this comes back to viewing the world in the right way that aligns with how the buddha talks about the world and then comes this beautiful uh, final uh, paragraphs here this is i i'm just going to read this out because these are these are very useful to remember about these things. So whatever a mendicant frequently thinks about and considers uh, becomes their heart's inclination. Uh, if they often think about and consider sensual thoughts, uh, they have given up the thought of renunciation to cultivate sensual thoughts. Uh, their mind inclines to sensual thoughts. Uh, if they often think about and consider thoughts of ill will, uh, thoughts of... Uh, 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 harshness or harmfulness, uh, uh, the mind inclines to those thoughts, uh, and they often think about and consider cruel thoughts. The mind inclined towards, we, no, so this should be harmful thoughts. Uh. Yeah. So the idea here is that when, whatever you think about becomes the inclination of your mind. Uh, yeah. So if you, you it, so one of the things about on this Buddhist path is to know your mind. Uh, what are the things that you think about a lot in your life? Uh, that is where your mind is inclining. And so by changing the way you think, by reading the word of the Buddha, starting to think about the world in a different way, you are inclining your mind in a different direction. And this is kind of the whole purpose of this. One of the things about the, the idea of the inclination of the mind, one of this also has a very strong um, consequences for rebirth. Because the inclination of the mind when you die, that is where you also tend to get reborn. Yeah, This is what you find in some of the suttas in the uh, Nidana Sangyuta. Your mind's inclination is what kind of drives the rebirth process. Where you want to go, that is where you tend to go, as long as you have the kamma to support it. That's kind of scary, so you want to incline your mind in a very positive way. uh, And when you are on your deathbed, uh, your mind is leaning in the right direction. uh, And that leaning in the right right direction uh, will then enable the process of rebirth to be a happy one as a consequence. uh, Because you're already going the right way. uh. Ideally you could say you don't want to be reborn at all, but at the very least, uh, make sure you get reborn in a good place if you're going to get reborn. uh. That's kind of the minimum requirement. So we want to incline our mind. We understand the danger in these things. Uh, We want to reprogram the mind, think in new ways to change the inclination. Uh, This is a large part. Recondition ourselves. uh, Ensure that our habits from the past do not... um, uh, do not... um, uh, kind of force our future yeah, and, and, uh, and uh, determine the outcomes uh, uh, of our life uh, simply because of our past inclinations of the mind. Uh. And then we have this simile at the very end here. Uh. Suppose it's the last month of the rainy season uh, when the crops grow closely together and a cowherd must take care of the cattle. Uh. He would tap and poke them with his staff on this side and to that and that uh, to keep them in check. Why is that? Uh, For he sees that if they wander into the crops, uh, he will be executed, imprisoned, fined, or condemned. In the same way, I saw that unskillful qualities uh, have the drawbacks of sordidness and corruption, uh, and that skillful qualities have the benefit of cleansing and cleansing power of renunciation. uh. So here we have this... uh, Nice simile of the cowherd, uh, yeah. The cowherd looks after the cattle, uh, and uh, uh, the cowherd's job uh, is to ensure that the cattle graze in the right place, uh, yeah. So he keeps on tapping the cattle on this side and that uh, to make sure they don't stray into the fields. Because if they stray into the fields, uh, then there will be some very serious consequences. Uh. Yeah, in those days, if the cattle strayed into the field, you might get executed. Uh, that doesn't happen these days, fortunately, anymore. At least not here in Australia. I hope I am. I'm, I'm pretty sure it doesn't. <laughs> but imprisonment, fine, and condemnation—surely we can understand these things. Uh, yeah. So you are mindful. You are careful. You guard those cattle. You guard those cows, uh, because you want to ensure that you don't get into trouble because of those cows. Uh. And of course, the cow here. This is your mind, right? The mind is what you guard all the time. You make sure your mind doesn't stray into the crops. The crops are the, uh, you know, the ill will thoughts, the thoughts of ill will, the thoughts of harming, and the sensual thoughts. that's the crops, uh, because the consequences are very severe. That's the kind of the point here. You get executed. Uh, Yeah, you're heading down the wrong track. You're ending up with very serious consequences if you indulge too much in these things, especially anger. Anger is by far the worst quality here. Ill-will is the one that really is problematic. The Buddha says in the suttas that sensuality is uh, to be overcome, but it's not that bad. Uh, What is really bad is ill-will, one of the problems of sensuality that tends to come with ill will ill will is really inseparable from it so ultimately you have to overcome sensuality but ill will is the one that really i would recommend you to focus on don't worry so much about the sensory realm if you can deal with the ill will then you are on the right track so this is the cowherd you poke your mind this side that side Uh, Use a bit of wisdom power and uh, see things in the right way. And as you do that, you ensure that your mind does not stray too far and go too far in the wrong way, especially when it comes to ill will. In the same way, I saw the unskillful qualities have the drawbacks of sordidness and corruption. And the Pali word for sordid is, uh, what is it? Uh, It is uh, something, is it I can't remember what the word is now, but it's something that means like the low mind, yeah, the mind that is low. It is mind that is dragged down to a low level. And you will feel that the more corruptions you have in the mind, the more ill-will you have, the more powerful desires you have, the lower you kind of feel. You feel less noble as a person. And as you build up the good qualities, when the good qualities are very strong and very powerful, you actually feel a kind of nobility in yourself. You feel pure. You know that you have elevated yourself to a higher level. And that feels really beautiful when that happens. So notice these things. The, the, these uh, negative thoughts actually are coarse, they are sordid, they drag you down. It makes you feel less of a, a high-minded human being uh, because of these qualities. Uh. And as you notice these things, it's much much easier to get rid of them. Uh. They are corruptions, they are the kilesas of the mind. Uh. Yeah, the mind gets corrupted or defiled, it gets dirtied, quite literally. Uh these things uh, and when you try to meditate your mind is more dirty uh, the mind is not so pure it isn't as bright as it otherwise should be uh, and this is part of the problem here uh, on the other hand uh, the uh, uh, skillful qualities uh, have benefits uh, yeah they have the cleansing power of renunciation of giving up uh, So the skillful qualities, they lead you in the right direction, they have good consequences, Uh, they lead to good outcomes, they enable you to practice the path, and gradually you're purifying yourself uh, as a consequence of this. Uh, So um, there you are, that is the Dveta Vitakka Sutta. We'll come back a little bit more to this later on, because there's also the opposite side, uh, which is the development of the good qualities. But for now, I just want to remind you that this too is about right view, is about learning to see the world in the right way, understanding people around you in such a way that it does not lead to anger, does not lead to ill will when you are dealing with difficult people. There's always going to be difficult people in your life. There's always going to be challenging situations. And if you are able to change the way you look at people, there comes a point when it's very difficult to become angry in the world. Why? Because you cannot see people in that way anymore. You see them as victims rather than perpetrators. They are victims of their own past. They are victims of their own conditioning. They are victims of their own personality. We are proud of our personality, but the reality is that our personality is a constructed thing, uh, that is constructed through past conditioning. Uh, and that constructed thing it traps you in the present. Uh, it, it, that is the thing that blocks you from seeing the world uh, in a more clear way, in accordance with how the Buddha taught things. Uh, that is your personality. Uh, so we want to develop that personality in a positive way. Uh, and this is what this is about. Uh. So please make the focus of this, don't worry too much about the sensory things. Reflect on those occasionally, because it's good to move the mind towards meditation practice and the higher kind of mind, but certainly overcome ill will. Certainly put a focus on that, because that is really powerfully detrimental. And if you can deal with that in your life, and you can reduce any ill will you have to the people and the world around you, that is going to be very, very useful on the spiritual path. uh. Okay, it is exactly 10 o'clock, which is good news. uh so uh, that is all for this morning so uh, once again please keep on enjoying yourself never forget that meditation is supposed to be happy and joyful Uh, enjoy yourself have a nice lunch enjoy the food yeah that's also important Uh, this anti-sensuality rant i just went through does not mean you should not enjoy your food please enjoy your lunch right Uh, then you feel less hungry in the afternoon uh, and then we will see you back again at two o'clock this afternoon